0: Well, guys, for four Sundays, we're going to be spending time in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is an interesting book, if you're uh, somebody who studies the Bible, because it is Paul's final letter, and I think he knows it as he's writing it. This is uh, the last letter Paul wrote before he was martyred. And in fact, in the course of the letter, he says... To Timothy, that his time has come. He's being poured out like a drink offering. He's aware that he's about to be martyred for the gospel. And so this is really his last will and testament, if you will, if you want to look at it that way. This is his parting shot. This is his last attempt to frame what is most essential and needed in words to his mentee, Timothy. And we're going to just spend, uh, there are four chapters in the book of 2 Timothy, and we're going to spend a Sunday on each chapter. And really, I feel like in some ways that's a crime, but if I did it in a verse-by-verse kind of way, we'd spend probably a couple years in 2 Timothy, and you guys would lose patience with that. So (laughs) we're just going to go chapter by chapter. But I think in each of the four chapters, there is an essential core truth that we're going to be unpacking. But let me begin just by reading "'Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus.' who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phisholus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So once again, just for a little bit of background context, Paul the Apostle traveled to Rome and he was put in prison there under house arrest. And there he wrote a number of, we call them the prison epistles, one of them being uh, the book to the Ephesians. And there he's under house arrest. And uh, it doesn't appear to be as severe an imprisonment as the one he's writing 2 Timothy in. Uh, I don't know this to be a fact, but most Bible scholars believe that he was released for a period of time following house arrest. And during that time, he wrote his first letter to Timothy and his letter to Titus. But now he, under Emperor Nero... And the great persecution that followed the fire in Rome, Paul has now been put back in prison. But this time he's in a prison called the Mamertine prison. And you can still go to Rome today and see the Mamertine prison. There's a hole in the floor and they lowered prisoners down and it's a very dark, cold place. And that's where prisoners were kept before going uh, to be executed, So Paul has been lowered through a hole in the floor into a very dark place. It's called the Mamertine Prison. And there, probably in 67 AD, he is writing this letter to Timothy from that dark place. Now, that's the context here. Uh, He is probably martyred that same year. So he writes this letter. This is probably his last letter. And as I said earlier, he seems to be aware of it. Now, the book of Timothy... Uh, is, is fascinating because of that aspect that goes with it. Uh, his parting words to Timothy are tender. They're personal. And they focus on the hope of the gospel with this kind of laser-like focus. There's a sense as you read this letter that Paul is really consciously passing the baton to the next generation of leadership in the church. And his spirit-led counsel to Timothy really, I think, echoes down through all the generations of the faith. And his words continue to challenge and encourage us today. These words that he's speaking to Timothy have been preserved in God's word, and through the Holy Spirit, they are speaking to us again today. And over the next four weeks, here's the way we're going to break out the book of Second Timothy. His counsel in chapter 1 to Timothy is to guard the gospel. Above all else, guard the gospel. And then in chapter 2, which is what we're going to take up next week, um, he's going to tell Timothy to be ready to suffer for the gospel. Part of guarding it and holding it up as high and important and worthy of our all is to stand ready to sacrifice in that effort to guard it. And then in chapter 3, he's going to talk to Timothy about continuing in the gospel. The gospel, you see, is not just something that we believe and give mental assent to. It, when it is truly embraced and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it will be lived out. It will find practical expression in the way that we live in a, a high... Uh, Love for personal righteousness and a love for God's people, the church. And so he's going to talk to Paul about continuing in the gospel. And then, lastly, in chapter four, we're going to talk about the very important thing of proclaiming the gospel. But this morning, the main idea is this idea of guarding the gospel. In verse 12, Paul writes that he is convinced that God is able to guard until that day, the day of Christ's return. What had been entrusted to him. And then in verse 14, he exhorts Timothy to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And the thing that had been entrusted to them was the gospel. Paul had indeed been a guardian of the gospel over the course of his time in ministry. One of the reasons why the gospel has to be guarded is because it is targeted. Uh, Paul, you might remember, he defended the gospel against polytheism on Mars Hill in Athens. And he guarded the gospel against Gnosticism, the, which part, in part proclaimed that Jesus had not been bodily resurrected. He spent a lot of time in his letters addressing the first century heresy of Gnosticism, which if Jesus was not physically bodily resurrected, we would have no hope of physical bodily resurrection. And so Paul very aggressively counters that false gospel. And he also takes on, probably spends most of his time in his letters addressing the false gospel of legalism. There's this group that we might call them the Judaizers, which tried to put Jewish religious practice as necessary for salvation So, yeah, Jesus did his part, the cross and all that, that's necessary. But you also now have to do certain things to be saved. And Paul really, if you read the book of Galatians, he is at his most strident. Um, Really, some of his language is shocking that it's in the Bible even. Go read Galatians. It's an interesting read. (laughs) But it's like uh, he's fired up addressing this false gospel, the idea that you must save yourself and that Jesus just kind of helped. Paul's really offended at that idea. And so Paul has been a strong guardian of the gospel, preserving the foundation of our hope in Christ all through his career. And now he's coming to the end of it. And he writes Timothy, and he says, hey, you got to guard the gospel. It's being deliberately targeted. The hope that is the foundation of our salvation The enemy is going to try and kick that out, replace it, undermine it, water it down. Now, all down through the history of the church, each successive generation has been called upon to guard the gospel. Martin Luther, as he appeared before the Diet of Worms, he is guarding the gospel. We need the gospel, and the church had strayed away from what was most essential and needed, and... Martin Luther, at great personal cost, decided somebody had to say something and that somebody was him, so he said it. Charles Spurgeon, in his day, was a guardian of the gospel, and in our own day, we have seen a proliferation of false gospels that need to be guarded against here in our own day. Already in the brief introduction of his letter, Paul has clearly laid out what the gospel is. Uh, If you, I've never worked at a bank, but I've talked to people who work at banks, and they've told me that if you, um, in the training that they do get to spot counterfeits, they have the pin, you know, that they can put the mark on, but they actually don't spend a lot of time handling false bills. Mostly what they do is they're trained to be very familiar with the true authentic bill. You know, they'll train them on what a real bill looks like and feels like, and so, When we come to this idea of a false gospel, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, doesn't actually describe what not gospel looks like. (laughs) What he does do though, with great economy of language, because again, he's talking to Timothy who's already in agreement with him. So unlike in his letter to the Galatians, he's not gonna spend page after page after page arguing for and describing the gospel. Timothy's on the same page, but what he is going to do is just with this, again, great economy of language, his very brief amount of words, he's going to lay out clearly what the hope of the gospel is. In verses 9 through 10, he writes this, speaking of Jesus, "'Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace.'" which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There it is. When we, come, when we, when we as Christians talk about the gospel, what we mean is that God is the decisive agent of our salvation. He did it. He's the one who came to us. We did not have the ability to go to him. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they talk about the gospel, kind of act like... I heard another preacher use this analogy. I kind of like it. It's like if we stole God's boat, and we went out on a lake, and, G- and God was on the shore going, hey, you stole my boat, <laughs> and then we ran the boat against a rock, The boat was sinking and we're splashing in the water, and we're like, hey, save us. And so God tossed us a lifeline. We grabbed the lifesaver and we kicked our way into shore. Is that what salvation is? I say to you, no, it is not. In that story, yeah, we wronged God, we sinned, we stole his boat, we ran it aground, we were sinking. But in that story, we had the wisdom to call out to God. And he did his part. He threw us the lifesaver, but we grabbed it, and we kicked our way in. I think a lot of people frame salvation that way, and it's not true to what the Bible says. The Bible says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. Dead people don't call out. Dead people don't act. Dead people don't kick their way into shore. In our analogy of the stolen boat, the way it would have played out true to how the Bible presents our salvation is this. We stole the boat. We took it out on the lake. We ran it smack dab into a rock. We were tossed into the water unconscious. We died. We sank to the bottom where the fish started eating us. Jesus dove into the water, swam down, grabbed us, brought us up onto the shore, breathed life back into us, and then he fell over dead from the effort. That's the gospel. We were dead. We were goners. We were totally lost, cut off from him in a dark place. We had neither the wisdom or the capacity to call out to him or go to him, but he came to you. When it says here, who saved us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And then it says, He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and was manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. We did nothing. We did not go to him. He came to us. It was the appearing of him. It was the manifestation of him. It was him having pity on you. Not you having the wisdom to cry out. This is the gospel. And Paul is saying guard this truth because it is so slippery in the fallen human mind. We are so quick to make God smaller than he is and to make man's part in the whole thing much bigger. Paul is saying you've got to guard this and this is what it is. So the gospel must be guarded because it is opposed. It is opposed. There is a real enemy. Just as we believe there is a real God, we believe that there is a real enemy opposed to God and His purposes and His plan to redeem fallen man. And because he is opposed to God and His church, the thing that is most needed is the gospel. If the enemy can hack away at the base of the gospel, the whole thing falls down, And we're made irrelevant. And he would love for you to be an irrelevant church, an irrelevant Christian. And so his plan, of course, is to undermine and dilute and confuse us away from the gospel. So that's why it must be guarded, because it's opposed, but also because it is so needed. It's absolutely needed. In Galatians 1, 6 through 10, again, I I spoke about Galatians. If you're looking for some place to spend your devotions in the New Year's and you're not really sure where to go, go to the Gospel, not not the Gospel, go to the letter to the Galatians. Great book, great, great book. You'll be blessed because you went there. But in the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says, "'I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel.'" or of God or am i trying to please man if i were still trying to please man i would not be a servant of christ now at the center of this passage the one in galatians is the truth that there is only one gospel only one and that is absolutely needed christianity is built upon statements like john 14:6 where jesus says I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus didn't say, I'm, I'm a way. I'm one of the truths. I'm a way you can find life. None of that. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. These, this statement is inherently competitive with other belief systems. So, Paul is echoing Jesus when he tells the Galatians that there is only one gospel. Now, Satan is an absolute counterfeit artist. He specializes in subtle distortions that mimic the truth, that pass themselves off as the truth, but are poisonous lies that kill and destroy. And this is why we must take care to guard the gospel from one generation to the next. Uh, This is one of the reasons why we talk so often here at State Road about being a people of the book. Last week, I talked about how our minds, I talked about my garden in Florida and how you could pretty much just hear the weeds growing back there. And if you walked away from the garden for any span of days, you'd come back and stuff would just start to grow in there that you didn't want growing. So you had to go out there every day with the hoe and chop up the weeds, and similar thing is happening in our hearts and minds. Right now, the world is planting seeds of error in your mind continuously. And they are threatening to grow and take over the whole thing. And some of us go days, weeks, months without cracking the word for ourselves. And the word of God is like a hoe. That when you go out into the garden of your mind with God's word, it just chops away at that error which is threatening to flourish and take over the whole place. And so one of the reason, one of the ways that we guard the gospel is by filling our minds continuously with biblical truth. This is a very important idea that we need to embrace personally as Christians and as a church. A right understanding of what the Bible teaches is a necessity. If a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, but only a distortion, can spring up inside the church, then surely we must make it our aim to become serious about studying God's Word. Paul said in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, be babes in evil, but in thinking, be mature. For if our thinking about these things is hazy and imprecise, then we will be sitting ducks for the heresies like the one that arose among the Galatian Christians. Please don't get me wrong. (laughs) Don't get me wrong on this. The gospel is not complicated. It is not difficult to understand. It does not require years of study to grasp. You can grasp the essential truth of the gospel in an instant. And even a very limited intellect, the intellect of a child can grasp all that is needed to attain to salvation. The gospel is not complicated. It is not difficult to understand, but it is precise. It is precise. When Jesus says that the way of salvation is a narrow door, he is, among other things, perhaps, saying that we're not aiming our hope at the broad side of a barn. Now, it's not difficult to hit. Jesus is not coy. God in His Word does not hide the meaning of the gospel. It's not complicated. But guys, it is precise. We need to speak with precision about what the hope of our salvation is. And Paul does that here in this letter. Paul says that Jesus is not by your works, it's through what Jesus has done. It's by putting your trust in Him and submitting to Him as Lord. Uh, Paul said to the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20.30, he said, From among your own selves will arise men speaking distorted things to draw the disciples after them. And he goes on in verse 27 to say that he's done his part to prepare them by declaring the whole counsel of God. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So one of the ways that we guard the gospel is that we ourselves pursue with a disciplined intentionality the whole counsel of God. Okay, now having said that, having talked about what Paul says in chapter 1 about guarding the gospel, I do want to point out some ways that I think the false gospel has gained purchase in the church that I've grown up in, that I've witnessed personally. There's way more than this that I could list. I think that the enemy is relentless and creative and intentional, and he's always coming up with ways to hack away at the gospel. But over my years in the church... I want to talk about three ways that I've seen a false gospel embraced among God's people that I feel like I knew personally. Uh, One is this. Uh, I think one of the false gospels that people have sometimes embraced is a belief that Jesus is Savior, but He's not their Lord. I remember very early on when I first moved to Florida and took on my church down there, um... I needed a car, and I found out about a guy who was selling a car, and I drove uh, our van over to meet him, and while we were haggling over the price of the car, uh, he asked me what I did for a living, and I said, oh, I'm the new pastor at such-and-such church, and he said, hey, I'm a member at your church. (laughs) That was news to me. I'd never seen this guy, and he had never saw him after that either. But he went into the house and he actually, after rummaging about for a bit, came out with his baptism certificate from when he'd been baptized in that church. Now, I don't want to defame this man or anything like that, but it, I did get to know him more, and there was no evidence in his life that he loved righteousness or that he loved God's people or that the great mission of the church to go and reach the lost was in any way a part of his life. I, I I guess I, I don't want to sit in the judgment seat. I don't know ultimately where this man stands, but I think there's cause for concern. You see, he talked about Jesus as his Savior, but he did not live like Jesus was his Lord. Part of what Paul says to Timothy here is when he's explaining the gospel, he says, "...who saved us and called us to a holy calling." In other words, Jesus didn't just isn't just Savior, He's Lord. And I think that it is a false gospel to say that I made a decision for Jesus and it and I did not go on to live like it mattered. I think that's easy believism, that's cheap consecration. That's boiling the gospel down to just giving mental assent to something. And I don't think that's the gospel. So I think we can fall into the habit of saying Jesus is my Savior while never embracing Him as Lord. And I don't think that's the gospel. Another way, though, is to say Jesus is my Lord, but look upon yourself as Savior. Again, to go back to our analogy of the boat. And this is the idea that in some way I'm contributing to my own salvation. Either I obtained it because of works Or I'm maintaining it because of works. So just like you can say, I think, Jesus is my savior, but I'm not cool with him being Lord of my life. (laughs) I don't really want to love the things he loves. I don't want to live in obedience. Um, You can also, I say, think, man, I love the law keeping. And by that, I'm going to save myself. And I think that this is a false gospel. This is one that I think Paul spent most of his time, in his letters at least, addressing. This was very much in evidence in the first century church, where people believed, yeah, Jesus is essential. His death on the cross, salvation wouldn't be possible without Jesus. But now you've got to also do your part. You've got to do this, you've got to observe this, you've got to go to this, you've got to do this, that, and the other. And if you do all of that, you're saved. And I think that this finds expression in our own church today by people who really in their heart of hearts believe, yeah, Jesus saved me, but if I sin, he's going to take that away. If I blow it and mess up, he's going to come to me and say, 'Mm, no, I, I want that salvation back. This kind of idea is really at the heart of some prominent heresies in our day. I think Mormonism holds a works-based scheme of salvation at its core. A lot of its language roughly mirrors Christianity, but really at its root, it is a salvation based in works. Many other uh, heresies that have emerged in our own day have this as its root And it's because, again, the gospel is not complicated, but it is precise. And as soon as we start saying, I'm saved in part or in whole because of my own goodness, my own resume of works, we are saying to the cross, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to save myself. I don't need a savior. It's a slap in the face to Jesus. It's a rejection of the cross to say, I'm going to save myself. So those are two. I think some people say Jesus is Savior, but he's not my Lord. That's not the gospel. Some people say, oh, he's Lord, and I'm going to save myself. That's not the gospel. (laughs) I also want to point out another false gospel that has flourished uh, here in the United States specifically. It actually finds its origins in the United States. And this is the kind of, we might call it the prosperity gospel, health and and wealth, wealth gospel, or sometimes it's called the word of faith movement, if you're familiar with these terms. Uh, basically, I just want to talk about, um, in this idea, I think people confuse the aim of the gospel. More than even just the prosperity gospel, we might talk about liberation theology, if you're familiar with that term. If you're not, Google it later. No big deal. <laughs> Everybody's like, boy, he's just trying to sound smart up there, like he went to seminary. No. No. Or people who use the gospel as a means to some kind of a political end or a social end. Uh, All of these things have one thing in common, which is that they look on the gospel as having utility for its this worldly benefit. Uh, I think I saw this in some forms when I was a kid, Um, growing up in the church. People would talk to me about how if you were a Christian, like take, for example, when I was a kid, the AIDS epidemic was really taking off. And so, youth leaders would tell me, uh, you know, if you're a Christian and you uh, obey God's laws surrounding sexual purity, you won't get sick. Now, there's enough truth there that is true, but is that the object of the gospel, or somebody might say, you know, if you're a Christian and you're honest and you tell the truth, you'll get ahead at work. Hmm. There's enough truth there to make that sound right on and good. Because in part it is. But is the point of the gospel to get ahead at work and to stay healthy? Say that to Jesus who died on a cross. Say that to Paul who endured beatings in prison time. How did the gospel help him get ahead or save him from physical harm? Is this really the object and the goal of Christianity? Now, we see this writ large in people who embrace the so-called prosperity gospel, which is really a perversion of the gospel of Jesus that claims that God rewards our faith with increases in health and or wealth in this life. As Stephen Hunt explains, in the forefront is the doctrine of the assurance of divine physical health and prosperity through faith. In short, this means that health and wealth are the automatic divine right of all Bible-believing Christians and may be procreated by faith as part of the package of salvation, since the atonement of Christ includes not just the removal of sin, but also the removal of sickness and poverty." I think that this is such a horrible perversion of the gospel, in part because the richest nation on the world has exported it to the third world. What an absolute crime that is. What an absolute misrepresentation of Jesus. I think also, uh, part of why this is so offensive is the idea that part of following Jesus is that we would be saved from harm or privation. Uh, I think very often we frame salvation as come to Jesus so you don't have to die. But Jesus said, come and die so that you can know life. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, even the foxes have holes in the ground, but I'm homeless. Jesus said, come and follow me, and they'll do to you what they did to me. Which is to be poor and persecuted and to sacrifice much. So this is a really a horrible perversion because it confuses the object of the gospel, the, the point of it. I think too we see in certain political movements that have kind of glommed on to the gospel as the means to some social end. Uh, again, not to Try to sound like I'm smart, but liberation theology is a really good example of this, Um, which is the idea that the gospel exists to transform broken systems. I don't think so. I think the gospel primarily exists to transform individuals within broken systems and ultimately deliver them out of those broken systems into the perfect order of heaven. But I think we do a disservice to the gospel when we we make its primary goal the achievement of some political end, or the transformation of a system, whether it be economic, judicial, governmental. After feeding the 5,000, the crowds tried to grab Jesus to make him king, and he slipped away from them. He's like, no, the gospel doesn't exist to further some political end. And I think that when people glom onto the gospel to make that the object, the goal, they've embraced a false understanding of what the gospel exists to do. And they've made it that this worldly benefits of the gospel, the, the goal of it. Now, here I want to end with this. Paul uh, is writing these words at the end of his ministry career. He's about to die. And he says, guard the gospel to Timothy. Preserve the true foundation of a person's hope when they go before the throne of judgment. Preserve the idea that a person who's truly been reborn is a lover of righteousness, but that through their righteousness, they're not obtaining or maintaining anything. They're just saying, this is what I love now. But this is not something that he arrives at just at the end of his career. If we go back to one of his first letters, his letters to the church in Corinth, Corinth, his first Corinthians, he says this to the Corinthians, "'And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified.'" And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I resolved to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. I resolved to preach nothing but the gospel. And this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul uses this word entrusted to talk about the gospel that had been given to him and given to Timothy. And this speaks to the fact that God's gifts are not just just for us, but they're also through us to others. If, you have, if you're here in this room this morning and you have personally embraced the gospel, that gospel has been entrusted to you, not just as a thing to privately enjoy. <laughs> you are not just a reservoir of blessings. You're a conduit through which it is flowing out to a very thirsty world. Uh, it's a it's a point that's been made to the point where it's just so trite, but the Dead Sea in Israel, do you guys know why the Dead Sea is dead? It's because everything flows into the Dead Sea, but it's at such a low uh, altitude, is that right? Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah. It's, a, it's in a depression, so it never flows out. Stuff just flowing into it all the time, it never flows out, so everything builds up the salinity and pollution and everything else, it just collects there, never flowing out. It turns septic. And I think there's a very uh, similar thing that happens to a Christian who just receives the gospel, receives the blessings continuously, but never flows out that is so contrary to the intended plan that it will turn septic. There is this idea that it's been entrusted to you. Now, there are many Christians today who are hesitant to share their faith with others because they think they don't talk good, or they're not wise enough, or they haven't spent enough time studying. But Paul said that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said he died to the idea of trying to find high and lofty words. I just spoke the plain truth. Now, you all know, and you all can speak about Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Dads, moms, decide today to know nothing among your children but Christ and him crucified. Talk often to your children about God, and talk often to God about your children. Paul starts by telling Timothy, I am constantly praying for you. Just as I'm talking to you now, Timothy, in this letter, I talk to God about you all the time. So talk often to your children about God, and talk often to God about your children. You employees out there. Decide today to know nothing among your coworkers but Christ and Him crucified. You don't need anything more than what you possess to be a proclaimer of these truths. You neighbors, decide to know nothing within your communities but Christ and Him crucified. You students, resolve to know nothing in your schools but Christ and Him crucified. And don't worry about speaking good are having all the answers. All God wants you to do, all that he asked of Paul, was to talk about Jesus and how he died on the cross for our sins. Stop acting like God could only use you if you were somebody else. God made you who you are, and he made you limited in design so that you would not depend on yourself but on him for the completion of the God-sized things he wants to do through you, through us. Paul specifically said that he did not use lofty speech or wisdom, and he did this so that they would know that their salvation didn't rest on the wisdom of men. But their faith had come to rest somehow miraculously on the simple truth that Jesus did it, that Jesus came, And he died on the cross. He took our sins and gave us his salvation. Paul shared the simple message of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, and God did the heavy lifting. Now, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll say it a lot until the day I die, but the church is this miraculous mingling, this strange mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. Jesus, God does the miraculous in the midst of us doing what is faithful. You open your words, and it's implausible words. They're simple words, a simple framing of the gospel hope that you personally have embraced. But I think very often we don't open our mouths because we don't trust God will show up with the miraculous. (laughs) If I stick my neck out and do what is faithful and needed... I don't really believe that God will do the miraculous, the heavy lifting in a person's heart and mind. Now the, God, now, the church is God's plan A to reach this world with the gospel, and he does not have a plan B. And another thing I've said to us as a church family many times is this, if State Road is silent, God will not be foiled, but he will raise up another church. And we can just fade to irrelevance. If we won't guard the gospel, if we won't suffer for the gospel, if we won't continue living in the gospel, if we won't be proclaimers of the gospel, what are we even doing? Let's just shutter the place. I'm not saying we're not doing that. By God's grace, I hear the stories all the time. I'm amazed by you as a people. I think you are sincere. But... Every generation all the time needs to be reminded of this call to guard this thing, the gospel, personally. We need to know that this is not only a needed thing, but it's the needed thing. And to stray from it personally or as a church would be, as Paul said to the Galatians, astonishing. That we would ever let go of such a precious thing. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul. And God, they continue to echo here in our own hearts and minds today with the, with the force that they did all those years ago, that this man who is about to die for the sake of the gospel, instead of toning it down, is going to go out kicking and screaming and shouting to the rooftops that this is what's needed. Now, Father, I pray for State Road Advent Christian Church. God, I know that when you look down on the county or on the world, you only see one church, and we're just one small expression of it. But Father, this is the church where you've brought us together into community and where we're striving together. And so, Father, I just want to pray for for this church, God, that you would give us another generation of gospel fidelity. God, I thank you for all the workers who have come before me in this place. I thank you for the people who have supported the work of State Road. Some wonderful stories of gospel-shaped people doing wonderful gospel-shaped things. And Father, I just pray that you would do it again. God, continue that good thing here in our midst. Father, I pray for this next generation that's coming up, that they would cling with a white-knuckle grip to the simple but needed truth of the gospel. It's not complicated. It's not hard to understand. But God, we have grasped the essential truth that it is precise. And if we take away from it or add to it, it stops being the gospel. So, God, we trust. We trust that Jesus accomplished on our behalf on the cross all that's needed. But, God, we also know that when we embrace that personally, it will show up in transformed lives, lives that love righteousness and turn away from sin, Father, we all sin, we all blow it, but God, I pray that you would continuously more and more draw us deeper into becoming like the God who saved us. God, we love you. We're so grateful for the gospel. Pray that you'd guard it here in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.